Welcome to Taking the Party Out of Politics. This is a podcast about understanding how politics is supposed to work, why it isn't working as well as it should be working, and what we might be able to do about it. Because by understanding a little bit more clearly how things are supposed to work and why they're a bit messed up, we might be able to get things to work a bit better, perhaps even a lot better. This is a little journey we're taking together about the systems and functioning of politics. Systems which we should all understand, because those systems affect all of our lives, all of the time. Left-wing or right-wing, intergovernmental, climate change summit or parish council Zoom meeting. And this podcast is about how we might be able to make those systems work a bit better. By understanding what is supposed to happen by understanding why it isn't always happening in the way it's supposed to, and by understanding what sorts of things we might do to make it better. This is season one, in which we're taking a look at how government is supposed to work, from the perspective of us, the voters. In season two, we'll be looking at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of someone trying to get elected, and then trying to do a good job. And finally, in season three we'll be looking at what we might be able to do to make things work a bit better. In the introduction to this season, we had an overview of what the issues are and a general idea of the route we're going to take through this and why this is important. In episode two, we started to think about why we have a government at all and the tacit, perhaps unspoken agreement which exists between those who do the governing and those who agree to be governed, what we call the social contract. In episode three, we discussed what we mean by the word democracy, along with other ideas, such as consideration for others and respect for minorities. Then we moved from there to start to explore the particular form of representative democracy, which we actually use. In episode four, we started to explore how the mechanics of electing representatives, and ultimately a government, well, how all of that is supposed to work, and why it isn't working, as well as perhaps we imagine that it should do. In fact, perhaps why it's actually impossible for it to work, given the way in which the system is set up. How is it possible to be elected on the basis of a set of promises, your manifesto, what you say you will do if you get elected, to get elected on the basis of a set of promises for which some people vote, but then once you're elected... How is it possible to be fair and then even-handed and to represent the needs of every one of your constituents, even the ones who didn't vote for you? And in episode five, we explored the difference between parliament and government and the different roles which each of them plays. Government is setting the agenda, trying to plan a path to a better future for the country on behalf of the people who elected it. Parliament is checking up on government, checking up on what government is doing, making sure that it's all sensible, that it's all fair, that it's all properly planned and properly thought through. Or at least that's the theory. In series two, we'll unpick some more of the reasons why that doesn't really work out quite as straightforwardly as it sounds. But the short answer lies in the fact that the same political party which forms the government also, at least normally, also has a majority in Parliament, which is a bit like being both poacher and gamekeeper. Making sure that the people who are refereeing on the VAR decisions, 
are mostly already your supporters, already wearing your team colours and your team rosettes. Well, we wouldn't let that happen in a football match. You have to wonder why we let that happen in Parliament. There's a lot more to explore on this, so we'll come back to that in more detail in Series 2. So, on to today. Today, we're going to have a look at the last piece of the puzzle from our perspective as voters. That puzzle is the impossible challenge which we're trying to master by trying to achieve three things with one vote. Choose a good local representative, from a political party which looks as though it could form a competent national government, and which appears to have a good set of policies to do the sorts of things which we think should be done. All three things, once every five years, with just one vote. We've already looked at how hard it is to select someone who is truly representative of us to represent us. And we've looked at how hard it is for that representative to actually represent all of the needs and wants of their constituents, even the ones who didn't vote for them, a situation which is made particularly difficult by the fact that our first-past-the-post electoral system in each constituency means that many of our representatives didn't even get 50% of the voters to vote for them. And we've also looked at how our national governments very often receive less than 50% of the national vote, which means that more than 50% of the people who voted actually voted against the government, not for the government. In fact, more than not very often, all national governments in the UK have received less than 50% of the votes since 1935. That last piece of the puzzle, then, is us voters trying to select a political party which appears to have a good set of policies to do the sorts of things which we think should be done. We vote for that set of policies. OK, it's part of our impossible voting challenge, but we still vote for that set of policies. Let's have a look under the bonnet to see what is actually happening here. The government is supposed to be delivering what the people voted for delivering what is called the government's manifesto. So what is an election manifesto? A manifesto is what the government says that it would do when the candidates asked you to vote for them. The person who wants you to vote for them sends out a leaflet and on the leaflet it says, please vote for me, or something like that. And it also says, if you vote for me, then I will do this and this and that, or I will make such and such happen. It might be a leaflet, it might be a TV party political broadcast on behalf of this or that political party. It might be what a candidate says in a speech. The manifesto is a published declaration of the intentions, motives or views of the candidates who are standing for election. And normally are also the coordinated national intentions, motives or views of their political party. It sets out such things as the candidates' values and beliefs and says what the individual and their political party intend to do if they are elected. Now, of course, a candidate from one party may be elected in your constituency, but their party may not win the election nationally. In that sort of situation, it will be very hard for your new MP to achieve very much of what they promised in their manifesto. So it would be unfair to focus on the manifesto promises of the people who are elected, but who aren't part of the party which gets all the power, the party which gets to form the government. 
let's concentrate on the manifesto promises of the ones who do get elected. Let's take it from election manifesto to Queen's speech, the first step after the election. After the election, and indeed at the start of each session of Parliament, which is sort of like the start of a new school term, the government gives the Queen a prepared speech to read to the members of Parliament. It's a formal ceremony, because the formal head of state in the UK is the Queen, and so we call it the Queen's Speech. The tradition of the Queen's Speech, or if we had a King, the King's Speech, started back when the speech would actually be setting out the policies and objectives of the King or Queen, letting the members of the House of Parliament know what King Charles I wants to happen, how much money he needs, what taxes he wants to raise, whether he wants to force the Church of Scotland to adopt the church practices of the High Anglican Church, that sort of thing. And by letting Parliament know, the Queen's or King's speech is being clear about what the plans are, on behalf of the Queen, or King, or nowadays, the government. Today in Europe, only the UK, the Netherlands and Norway have a version of this ceremony. But other countries very often have a similar process, such as the State of the Union address in the United States, and other things in other countries. The Queen's speech, then, outlines what the government is planning to do in the forthcoming session of Parliament. The connection with the manifesto is that the Queen's speech is expected to reflect the election manifesto of the winning party. The theory is that the people voted for this manifesto, so this is what the people want to happen. The political party which won the election presented this manifesto to the electorate before the election. They said, vote for us, and this is what we will do. They won the election, so, the logic goes, this is what the voters all wanted to happen. There may be some changes and adjustments depending on the election results and perhaps depending on changing circumstances in the country or in the world. Of course, the world can throw up all sorts of things which can get in the way of delivering on manifesto promises. Coronavirus lockdowns, economic slowdowns, furlough payments, a lot of sick people, a lot of dead people, and huge stresses on things like the NHS. None of this was in the plan when the current UK government was elected at the end of 2019. But, as a general principle, the idea is that the manifesto represents what everyone voted for. Well, let's examine that general principle a little bit more closely. Manifesto promises delivered? Well, at the election, political parties promise that they will do A, B, C, and so on. A whole list of promises, or at least a list of good intentions. This list is called their manifesto. Now, Whilst we might cut some slack to people who get elected but whose party doesn't get into power, and perhaps also cut some slack to governments which get elected but which then have to face major unforeseen events, like COVID-19, for example, what about governments who do get elected and who don't have to face major global pandemics? How are they at delivering on their promises? Well, first of all, should it matter? Is it important whether manifesto promises are delivered? Well, probably it should matter that governments deliver on their manifestos. After all, what are voters being asked to vote for? Yes, there is that challenge of trying to achieve three things with one vote. Select a good local representative from a party who you think might form a competent government overall and a manifesto of what it is that that party promises to deliver. We can, and we have, discuss how much that is kind of asking too much with just one vote. But still... 
One of the key things which we're being asked to vote on is that manifesto of what the party which gets to form the government promises that they will do. We're voting for that manifesto, and by doing so, we are, at least by default, saying that this is the portfolio of things which represent at least the sorts of things which we want to happen. In addition, one of the big principles of a representative democracy is that if the government we have elected doesn't do a good job, then the government risks us not re-electing them. And how do we assess whether the government is doing a good job? Well, it might be on how well the economy is doing, or on whether the national football team has won the World Cup, but one of the big ways in which we can judge whether a government should be trusted a second time is to consider whether they deserved our trust the first time. In other words, the theory is that with our one vote, we trusted the government by voting for them last time. We trusted them to be a competent bunch generally, but we also trusted the government by voting for their manifesto last time. So we should consider whether they deserve that trust again by thinking about how well they delivered on the promises in their manifesto. So, yes, it should matter. It should also matter because, having got elected with a portfolio of promises in their manifesto, governments often say that they have a mandate to deliver on this or that particular promise. For example, having been elected in 1997 with a promise to put up taxes and to put the money from those taxes into the NHS, Tony Blair was expected to put money into the NHS. Well, the Office of National Statistics says that, quote, healthcare spending more than doubled between 1997, which is when Tony Blair was elected, and 2018. It more than doubled in that period, controlling for inflation. And, having been elected in 2016, with a manifesto which included holding a referendum on membership of the EU, David Cameron proceeded to do exactly that, often quite explicitly referring to the fact that he believed that he had a mandate to do so. Now, what did he mean by saying that he had a mandate? Well, he was saying that people voted for this thing, and the fact that it was on the list of things which people had voted for meant that he had a sort of a special mission given to him by the fact that the people voted for that thing. That special mission, supposedly given to him by the people, is what he called a mandate. In this case, a mandate to hold a referendum on UK membership of the EU. So, two important questions here. First, does having a promise in a manifesto really make it a mandate to deliver on that manifesto promise? And second, how good generally are governments at delivering on the promises in their manifestos anyway? So, does a manifesto promise become a mandate? First then, does having a promise in a manifesto make it a mandate to deliver on that manifesto promise? Is the government really being sent on a mission by the voters to deliver on every single little bit, on each one of the promises in the manifesto? Well, I would argue, no. This line of thinking really starts with the challenge of achieving those three things with one vote. Remember, selecting a good local representative who is also a member of a political party which looks as though it could form a competent government and a list of manifesto promises, which list what that political party says that it would like to do if it's lucky enough to get enough of our votes. 
Just doing one of those things is difficult enough. Two of them is the sort of thing which only the Queen of Hearts would claim to be able to do before breakfast. Three, well, perhaps even in Alice in Wonderland, we wouldn't claim that anyone can really do all three of those things in much detail. And, on top of that, remember we're voting for the whole package. Not only does the candidate come with a political party and a political manifesto full of promises, but the candidate comes with the whole list of promises. We don't get to select the ones we like or to put them in an order of preference. Just imagine that we have a situation where a government is elected mainly because the opposition are rubbish. OK, so as a result, we have the best of a bad lot. Given the fact that the opposition are rubbish, at least we have the most competent or perhaps the least incompetent to run the country. But are we really also pretending that the voters who voted for the least bad option are also deliberately selecting this list of manifesto promises in particular? And that the voters are all selecting each one of these manifesto promises. That each one of these manifesto promises is being singled out, singled out by each voter individually, as something which they want to create as a mission, a target, for the government to deliver on. Remember that the government has not been elected by a majority of voters in the country since before 1935. So even if all the voters who voted for the government, and even if we assume that all of those voters voted specifically for all of that manifesto, and even if we assume that all of the voters voted specifically for promise number 23 in that manifesto, well, it still wasn't a majority of voters in the country who voted for promise number 23. Logically, so many things are being wrapped up in the bundle for which we have only that one vote, well, then I suggest that it's pretty disingenuous for a government to claim that there is much of a manifesto for any particular promise in its manifesto. We could argue that the whole manifesto was sort of lumped onto us. If we were just trying to identify which of the political parties was looking like the least rubbish bunch, then we might have to accept the manifesto which went along with that least rubbish bunch. But it's certainly stretching the truth to focus on any one promise in the manifesto and to claim that it translates into a mandate for the government to go out and deliver specifically on that one thing. Well... How good are governments at delivering on manifesto promises? So, if the first of our important questions was whether a promise in a manifesto made it into a mandate to deliver on that manifesto promise, our second question was how good generally are governments at delivering on the promises in their manifesto anyway? Now, this is important for two reasons. On the one hand, because it's interesting to see how reliable governments are at delivering. In other words, how seriously should we take their promises before an election if they aren't very good at delivering on those promises after an election? Well, let's look at that. But on the other hand, and just before we see how reliable governments are at delivering on their promises, there is an additional logical step here. Because if we find that governments aren't very good at delivering on their promises, then I think that makes that even more implausible that they should claim a mandate for any particular promise. That would be like saying to the electorate that there are 39 things on this list, you've got to vote for them all, or vote for someone else, and then after the election, we're actually going to choose to do just some of them. We'll choose which ones, not you. Nah, 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 nah. In fact, it wouldn't be like saying that. It is exactly saying that. So, is it the case that governments deliver on 
their election manifesto promises or not. Let's have a little look at how some of our recent governments have performed. In November 2019, the Institute for Government published an article looking back on the track record of the Conservative government which had been elected in 2017 to see how that government had been doing on its list of electoral promises. Of the 39 key commitments from the Conservative 2017 election manifesto, the Institute for Government found that only a third of them had been implemented, or were even on track to being implemented two and a half years later. Well, that certainly doesn't look good for the scoreboard for governments on delivering on their election promises. Now, that government, Theresa May's government after the 2017 election, was a government without a clear majority in Parliament. That certainly made it more challenging to deliver on all the manifesto. But only a third of the manifesto promises? That doesn't sound at all impressive, does it? Let's take a different example. At the end of 2020, the Huffington Post published a review of Boris Johnson's government's performance, one year after his election. Now, you might say perhaps one year is only a small part of the five years which a government should usually have the right to expect to deliver on their manifesto. And 2020 was a year with COVID-19 hanging over everything. But even so, the assessment is that it's been a, quote, mixed bag of performances, unquote, and that, quote, many promises remain unmet, unquote. OK, so there was Brexit and there was COVID-19. Perhaps recent performances aren't a useful way to assess whether manifestos are successfully delivered in normal times. OK, so what if we look at some other things? Well, in 2010, the Liberal Democrats were elected with a manifesto pledge to scrap tuition fees. And then the Liberal Democrats went into a coalition with the Conservative Party to form a coalition government and promptly voted to increase those fees. Certainly, there are some pretty damning examples of key election promises which were not delivered. In 2015, The Guardian published an article reviewing how well the Conservative Party had done on delivering its manifesto promises from when it was elected in 2010. The summary was that the big changes which the Conservative Liberal Democrat coalition ended up delivering, from major welfare cuts to a shake-up of the NHS, well, mostly, they hadn't been in the manifesto in 2010 anyway. On the other hand, whilst most of the minor technocratic pledges which had been in the manifesto had been delivered, some of the big manifesto pledges, such as eliminating the bulk of the deficit, well, they were not delivered. So, so far, so not very impressive. Now, OK, so the media tends to report on things which have not gone well, things which have gone wrong, not on things which have gone right Today, every school pupil in the UK got home safely. That doesn't make for gripping news headline, does it? But it's still not looking very good for the reliability of governments on delivering on all of their manifestos. Sometimes there are failures due to poor policy development. Perhaps the promise in the manifesto hadn't been properly thought through, and then when the party was in government, it was studied properly and wasn't put into law, or at least not in the way which had been planned in the manifesto. Uh, Perhaps we should cut governments some slack on that too. I mean, we'd rather have a government which studied things in detail and did the right thing, wouldn't we? Rather than a government which just stuck to a plan, even if more information came to light, or if new things were learned after further study, or if the situation changed. I certainly would rather have a government which was worried about being right, about doing the right thing, rather than a government which was only worried about being absolutely consistent 
with promises and plans from the past. In fact, it can be quite difficult to work out if manifesto promises are being delivered or if they're being missed. Just recently, March 22nd, 2021, it was announced that the size of the army was to be cut from what's called an established strength of 82,000 down to 72,500 by 2025. And this appears to fly in the face of manifesto promises from the end of 2019, which said things like, we're proud of our armed forces and we will always fund them properly. We will invest in training and equipping our armed forces and constantly champion their exemplary contribution to our security and our country. We will modernise the equipment and improve the capability of our world-class armed forces and intelligence agencies. We will continue to exceed the NATO target of spending 2% of GDP on defence and increase the budget by at least 0.5% above inflation every year of the new parliament. Those things were all in the Conservative manifesto. Now, at first glance, they sound like promises which are directly contradicted by cutting the size of the army by 13%, from 82,000 to 72,500. But you have to look at the detail of the wording of the manifesto, which uses words like fund them properly. It doesn't say that we will continue to keep troop numbers the same. And in fact, the army actually only has 76,500 troops anyway. The 82,000 is a target figure, but the army hasn't had the funds to recruit that many troops for more than a decade anyway. And the same announcement of the cuts in the number of troops also pointed out that the government was going to increase defence spending by £24 billion over the next four years. This is a repeat of the announcement made in November 2020 that, quote, the government has already pledged to increase defence spending by 0.5% above inflation for every year of this parliament. That's just like in the manifesto, remember? On existing forecasts, this is an overall cash increase of £24.1 billion over four years compared to last year's budget. Again, just like the recent press release. So on that basis, a headline about a cut in the size of the army might sound as though it's going against what was promised in the manifesto, but perhaps that's because the manifesto wasn't very clear. In fact, what the government is doing is actually what was in the manifesto. It's just that the wording in the manifesto was a bit misleading. Now, whichever way you look at it, manifestos aren't looking like a very good way of identifying before it is elected, what a government will actually do once it is elected. However, this is just to admit that manifesto promises shouldn't be cast in stone, that there should be room for adapting, for rethinking. And if there is room for adapting and rethinking, then every single one of the plans in any manifesto, particularly because the manifesto is only one of the three things which we're trying to vote for with one vote, well, it's just a little bit of stage magician's misdirection to claim that there's actually a mandate for this policy or that policy, isn't it? I mean, with a minority of votes for that manifesto anyway, and all of us really understanding that the manifesto is just the political party's best attempt at planning the future, that it's a way of giving us a look at the way they're thinking, well, again, it's just a bit of Alice in Wonderland to pretend that the voters voted specifically for promise number 23 or promise number 35, and that the government then has a mandate, a special mission, to deliver particularly on this or that promise. Well, perhaps that shouldn't be so much of a surprise to find that our governments try to stage-manage 
our expectations, to give us the circus ringmaster's particular spin on what is happening and why. Not really a shock, not really a surprise. But we need to remember that that's all it is when an election promise, a line of the manifesto, is later brandished by a Prime Minister with a claim that a complicated combination of things which we all had to vote for actually led to this particular thing being the one thing which voters have highlighted to the government as a particular thing to go on a mission to deliver. Because it just isn't that. At all. So, where have we got to so far? What do we really know about manifestos? And what do we need to take away from all of this? Manifestos are the lists of promises which political parties and their candidates give us when they ask us to vote for them. They say, if you vote for us, this is what we will do. It's one of the three ways in which we decide how to cast our one vote, for this candidate rather than that candidate, for this political party rather than for that political party. And for this set of manifesto promises, not for that set of manifesto promises. In terms of the content of those manifestos, the best case scenario is that it's an honest list provided by the candidate and the party which is asking us to vote for them, setting out what they really believe they want to do, what they really believe they will be able to do. A more likely scenario, of course, particularly because we now know that the list of manifesto promises is only loosely connected to what then actually happens, a more likely scenario is that both the candidate and the party is well aware that the manifesto is largely window-dressing. It's advertising. It's selling the idea of this candidate and of this party. It's pitching what the candidate and the party wants you to think about them. In fact, since most of us don't actually read the manifestos, it's really a pitch to the media, which then reports back to us on their interpretation of what this tells us about them. And there is more to explore in terms of the relationship between the media and our political systems in season two. For example, that our media channel of choice will almost certainly reflect back to us in terms that are going to grab our attentions. And from a perspective which echoes pre-existing prejudices, which we might have, but again... More on that in season two. Of course, if we accept that manifestos are just advertising what this party or this candidate is like, rather than specifically what they're actually going to do, then there's still some value in the manifestos. They are an attempt to give us a feel for what the agenda of the party would actually be if it gets into government. They're an attempt to get us to engage with the party, perhaps even to identify with the party, because these sound like the sorts of things which we would approve of. Perhaps not exactly the things which we would do, and perhaps not exactly the things which the party will actually go on to deliver, but like the things which we would do, like the things which we would want to happen. And as long as we're clear about that, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Anyway, after the election, manifestos are then transferred into the Queen's speech, at least in theory, which is setting out what the government is going to do. Since we've just voted for that government we should expect that most of what was in the manifesto then appears in the Queen's speech, and that most of it is then put into practice. There might be challenges. The economy might do better or worse than was anticipated. There might be global health challenges, which mean that plans have to be recalibrated. But on the whole, we just voted for a political party on the basis of what they said they will do. So we should reasonably expect that our new government will deliver on those promises. However, the evidence is, at best, pretty mixed as to whether this happens. Some of it does, some of it doesn't. And some other things which weren't in the manifesto, well, some other things happen as well. 
Does something appearing in a list of manifesto promises mean that the country specifically voted for that particular thing? Well, I suggest that it doesn't. Our votes already stretched, voting for a candidate, voting for a party, and now also voting for a manifesto. We certainly can't say that the majority of voters voted for this or that particular item on the list of promises. And so, for a government to claim that there is a mandate, a special mission for this or that particular item on the list, is a pretty mean language trick to play on the country. On the surface, it sounds reasonable. Initially, this was one of the items on the list of promises from the manifesto, from the party, which won the election because we voted for more of their candidates than for the candidates of any other party. But we didn't specifically single out this particular item from the list of promises. We didn't vote specifically for that one promise. For a government then to claim a mandate, a special mission, on the basis of a pretty lengthy, pretty shaky logical chain, well, it might make you want to not trust a politician next time. Just imagine that. Now, you might think that it's all going to be OK, because, as we discussed in the last episode, at least Parliament is checking up on the government, and Parliament isn't going to let the government get away with any such nonsense. Well, you might think that. However, in the next series, we're going to explore why the balance between Parliament and the government isn't working in the way it's supposed to. So, next time on Taking the Party Out of Politics. When we come back for Series 2 we will be looking at how our political systems are supposed to work and how they aren't working from the point of view of the people trying to work within the system. First, we'll look at the challenges involved in getting elected and the resulting pressures which that puts on candidates and the sorts of candidates who are prepared to put up with all of those pressures. Second, we'll look at the challenges involved in getting things done once a candidate is elected as an MP. Quite a lot, as it happens. For now... Thank you for listening. If you would like to access transcripts of this podcast or any podcast in this series, please go to www.talktogether.info and follow the links to our podcast page. If you have any feedback, you can contact us at any time by emailing info at talktogether.info. If you have enjoyed this podcast, then I hope you will take the time to tell your friends and perhaps you could also take a moment to give us a rating wherever you found us. That not only helps other people to find us, it also just really makes us feel appreciated. That would be great. Thank you. Yeah.